following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. In 1804, Thomas Jefferson literally sat down in the White House with an open Bible and a razor blade, and he actually started editing the New Testament. He cut out all of Jesus' miracles. He cut out any kind of reference that might actually point to the deity of Jesus Christ. He was actually trying to shape a Jesus into his own image. Uh, He was a definite, um, I don't know, what you call him, a rationalist. And the third president uh, did what was so popular, which is basically to create his own kind of Christianity. This is what we have in our culture as well. People constantly saying, well, this is my Christianity, when it's not actually a Christianity that follows God's revealed word in the New Testament. It's making God into your own image, making up a form of Christianity, one that you can agree with, one that's convenient, one that you understand, one that you can control. But there's a problem with that. Anytime you take the great God who is knowable but incomprehensible and you try to bring him down to your level, you have now distorted him. Amen? You have. You have molded him into something less than what he is. He's far too small at that point to offer any comfort during seasons of difficulty. He's far too small to give wisdom to you in a crisis. He's far too small to give an answer to your painful questions. And he's definitely far too small to offer assurance in the face of death when you begin to alter his character and you begin to shape him into your own image. The only God who can be trusted, embraced, and followed is a big God. Amen? He's got to be bigger than us. And the one that's revealed in Scripture is beyond what we can even comprehend. Uh, You can't even, Romans 11 says, comprehend the vastness of who He is. He is one who has demonstrated His nature. He is one who is sovereign over every single event. Listen, you may have had a car accident this week. You shouldn't have called it a car accident. You should have called it a car providence, okay? Because it wasn't an accident. God is in charge of every single event of your life. That's what the New Testament, that's what the Old Testament definitely proclaims. And the one God needs to be large enough so that you understand why His teaching is so unforgettable, why His miracles are undeniable, and why His love is incontestable. Because His love is an expression of His massive character. The only God who's big enough to demand our respect and demand our obedience is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And as Lord, Christ did not give permission to anyone to alter His character. There are going to be people facing Him in the future, and they're the ones who altered Him, and He had, you had no right to do that. I have revealed myself to you. We need to see Him for who He really is, and so much so that He actually gave us four Gospels in ways in which to reveal the vastness of His character, and even they can't give you all of what we know about who Christ is. And the one that stands first of the Gospels is what? Matthew. You don't have to be hesitant. That wasn't a trick question. Uh, Where Jesus is presented as king, or as Peter shouts, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew 16. And the Christ means that He is the Jewish Messiah. He is the King. He is the one we are to worship. Now, recently, there's been a little bit of focus on being a king with the coronation of King Charles III. Uh, Some of you were enamored with that. Others of you were curious. Others of you were disgusted. And for the vast majority of you, you ignored it altogether. No princess die, I don't care. Okay, so... If you were meeting, though, with genuine royalty today, I'm pretty sure that most of you in this room wouldn't come up to the king and go, Hey, Chuck, what's up? You know, you wouldn't say that. You would probably express a level of respect because he is acknowledged the king of England. Well, this is what Matthew is calling for in the Jewish king and as our king, 
a respect and a reverence and a sense of worship and a, and a sense of acknowledgement that he is truly the Lord God. Now, when Matthew wrote his gospel, he wrote it with a Jewish audience in mind uh, to reveal Christ's true character and nature and to prove to Israel that he is truly the promised Messiah that was promised for hundreds, if not thousands of years. He demonstrates it by lineage and miracles, fulfilled prophecy, character, and even the teaching of Christ demonstrates that he is deity, that he is God incarnate, that he is the sovereign God of the universe. The Lord were to follow, the King were to obey, the friend that is greater than any other friend that you have, the one were to treasure, the only Savior from sin, and you're ready? What sets Christianity apart is that God did the work on your behalf to transform you from the inside out. When he says he justifies you, he also regenerates you. Regeneration means he has made you new, that you are no longer the same person on the inside. You look the same on the outside, you are not the same on the inside. He changes you from being dead to God to alive to God, from enemy to God to the friend of God, and he gives you new wants, new desires, and new hopes. All of that comes. And what's so exciting is we're going to invest the next school year all the way through May and exposit through the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever preached a sermon. And that's the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That starts next week with an overview. Before we get there, I want to give you the background and setting from Matthew chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, and also a little bit from the other Gospels to set the stage so that you would understand our overview next week of the entire Sermon on the Mount. You cannot miss next week. God will forgive your sin, chick, shrivel up soul if you do, but understand you need to be here for that. You're not laughing today, but I don't understand why, but that's okay. Some have called Matthew the single most important document of the Christian faith, and the reason for that is that in the early church, Matthew was the most quoted gospel. It was the most referenced in all the writings that we have of that early church period. Now, while all four gospels are vital, there's a reason why Matthew was first. After centuries of silence, and then after 25 years after Jesus ascended back into heaven, the Spirit of God inspires, and God speaks again through His chosen apostles and introduces the New Testament beginning with Matthew. That's the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's why it stands first. It is that bridge. In fact, the Old Testament, the book of promise, and the New Testament, the book of fulfillment, and the Lord Jesus Christ being the only one who fulfilled those hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament found hundreds and given hundreds, even thousands of years before Christ was actually born. Every gospel has its own emphasis. Mark tells you that Christ is God, but also Christ is the servant. Uh, Luke gives you Christ is the Son of Man or man. John tells you that He is the Son of God, and Matthew proclaims that Christ is the, answer, the King. He's the King. In fact, he came as the Lord and ruler of all. He shows us, Matthew does, the all-powerful doer and the all-powerful and all-wise teacher. And I get that because there are 20 miracles in Matthew that are clearly explained, showing his deity, showing his authority, showing his commitment. And there are also six, different than every other gospel, major sermons in Matthew, in 28 chapters, six major sermons, and arguably the, the most incredible of them all is the one that we're going to be studying in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's also Matthew, though he focused on the Jewish people, introduced us to the church. He said, I will build my church, future tense, so it hadn't existed prior to that. So now in the New Testament, we find this gathering out of people of every nation, every race, Every language. Remember the Tower of Babel? He's bringing all those nations together into a conglomerate of people who now function as one. <clears throat> so much so that <clears throat> those who are not believers should look at us and go, what is going on? How do these people who are so different economically, so different racially, so different from various countries, how do they get along and not only get along, love each other to this level? 
It's shocking to the world, and they should see something unique. And that's what Matthew introduces. And Matthew himself, the person of Matthew, is an example of God's amazing grace and true salvation. He really is. Matthew, or Levi, the son of Alphaeus, was a tax collector. You should gasp right now. Ready? Gasp. That's right. If you want to picture the, the lowest person on everyone's scale, I mean the person that everybody in society disdains, it's tax gatherers in the first century. Now, I know some of you have very happy feelings toward the IRS, right? That's nothing compared to a tax gatherer in Roman times because they were working for the Roman government, so they viewed tax gatherers as traitors, and they were collecting taxes for Rome. But Rome also said, you can collect a little bit more so that you can support yourself. Well, they collected a little bit more than a little bit more. And people hated them for that. So not only are they traitorous working for the Romans, but they're also thieves. They're stealing more for themselves than really is right. And so they became wealthy and very, very hated. And the Lord Jesus, though, regardless of that, opens up Matthew's heart. And he becomes a new person. He becomes a Christ follower. And this was not an easy choice because not only is Matthew a tax gatherer, which everybody's shocked by, but he also came from Capernaum, and Capernaum is already a rejected city by Jesus Christ himself. So he's got a double whammy. He's a tax gatherer from Hemet. I mean, it's bad. All right? But God's call is irresistible. And Matthew not only opened his heart, but he opened his home. The very first thing that Matthew does is he says, I'm going to have a gathering in my house. I'm going to pay for it. And I'm going to introduce all my tax gatherer friends who are Jewish and Gentile to Jesus Christ. Very first thing he does, he's overwhelmed by his salvation. He was also used as a testimony of the grace of God. Some things that Matthew writes about in his gospel and focuses that the other gospels don't do as strongly as he does. He was criticized, Jesus was, for eating with publicans and sinners and hanging out with people that Pharisees would have nothing to do with. And so Matthew responded that Christ only came to heal the sick, not the well, to heal the unrighteous, not the righteous. Listen, if you're a Christian here today, you came to Jesus as unrighteous. Do you understand what I'm saying? You didn't come to him going, I'm such a good person. I, you're, you're blessed to have me as your child. You come to him going, I don't deserve anything. I deserve your wrath forever. I have rebelled against you. And somehow, someway, you have chosen me, given me grace, forgiven me, loved me, showed me mercy. I cannot believe that you gave this to me. Every single person who knows Jesus Christ comes to him as an unrighteous person because that's whom Christ came to save. And little did Matthew know that he would be not only proclaiming this, but the writer of the first gospel. In the first four chapters, Matthew labors to present an accurate view of Christ so that you would see him as truly not only the Messiah, but God incarnate. So I want you to track with me in your outline, okay? Two major points, pretty simple. We're going to go through Matthew 1 through 4. We're going to focus a little bit on the other gospels, and that's setting the stage for the Sermon on the Mount. So this is a big giant intro before we get to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. 1 and 2 is the birth of the king. 3 and 4 is the credentials of the king. And every one of us as believers continually needs to renew your love for Jesus Christ. You came here today, you're worn out. You've had a tough week. There's been a ton of distractions. Hopefully, you've been living for Christ. Hopefully, you've been remembering Him throughout your day. Hopefully, you've been living for Him throughout the day. But the key is, when we gather together, we're to be renewed in our love for Him. Amen? And if you don't know Him, that you would come to a point to submit to Him and be transformed by Him. Listen, let me make this really clear. You have gathered here to worship. Worship is not singing praise with Patrick. That's a part of worship, but true worship, as you understand the New Testament, is you offering yourself to God. You are here saying, I'm renewed. You know, all week long it's been eaten away and I've been independent, I've been doing my own thing, I haven't been relying on Him, and now I need to remember, wait a minute, I'm here as His child and He deserves all of me, all that I have, everything I say, everything I do at school and at work and with my family, with my kids and everything, He deserves it all. 
because of what he did for me. In fact, Romans 12 says, you are a living sacrifice. You're still alive, but you're sacrificing your life to him. And he says, that's your reasonable worship. That's just expected. That's what we're doing here. And that's what the king is going to demand. So let's take a look at the king's birth. Number one in your outline, the king's birth. And let's walk through what that true worship would look like. If a man shows up on the scene, claims to be king, they're going to demand proof, right? He's got to have the right lineage. So he anticipates these questions. And Warren Wiersbe gives us four H's that I borrowed. And so here they are. First, the heredity of the king in chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. Now, you understand that my genealogy is not important to me. Uh, I don't know why I was raised a certain way that it didn't matter uh, what my heritage was. And my heritage is kind of funky. I'm Mueller, but I'm not German. My grandfather was not Mueller. He was my step-grandfather. And and mysteriously, my grandfather was a rich Irish politician in Chicago who we are not to discover as a family who that is. Uh, for reasons of safety. So please don't look that up, okay, and try to find that out. All right? My dad was very strong with me. Don't find that out. Just accept it. And then he lived during the time of Al Capone. And my grandmother was a prohibition flapper. Everybody know what that is? You know, that, 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 oh, never mind. Okay, so she, she would dance. She spent time around Al Capone. And on my mom's side, there were a lot of Belgian police chiefs who almost all of them died in the line of duty, but it was like police chief after police chief, so a lot, of, a lot of police heritage there. But I am Belgian and Irish, and I don't care, okay? The reason I don't care is, are you ready? I'm in the forever family of Jesus Christ. That's my identity. This, this life is a blip on the radar. My forever family is the winning team. It's the family you want to be a part of, and it's the one that I belong to. It's the one I identify with. I am in his forever family in joy forever. And none of you can take that away from me. Right? It's a heavenly family. But genealogies, though they're not important to me, were extremely important to the Jews. Extremely. This is how they proved their tribal membership. This is how they could have their land claims and inheritances. Anyone then also who claimed to be in the royal house of David, that lineage of Judah, then they had to prove it. And so that's what Matthew labors to do. Now Matthew's genealogy is generally the Lord's heritage through his foster father Joseph, whereas Luke's genealogy is generally the Lord's heritage through his human mother Mary, So two different perspectives there, but both genealogies make it clear that Jesus Christ's birth is different than any other Jewish boy named in any genealogy. Now you're going to get a little Christology today, and I'm excited about it. Matthew, I love Christology, and Matthew points out that Joseph did not beget Jesus, but rather Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who's called the Christ. Christ was born of an earthly mother without the need of an earthly father, meaning a virgin birth. Tracking with me? Every child born in the world is a new creature, but not Jesus. When we put those babies up on the screen on Sundays, and we celebrate those new births, building the kingdom one baby at a time, that's a great celebration. And that, as they're conceived in the womb, that's their beginning. That's not true with Jesus. Jesus existed before Mary. He existed before Joseph. He existed before any earthly ancestors. (laughs) Mary held her Creator in her arms and nursed her Creator. Tracking with me? If Jesus were conceived and born like any other baby, He would not be God. It was necessary for him to enter the world through an earthly mother and not begotten by an earthly father. It's supernatural. It's called the incarnation. And by a miracle of the Holy Spirit, probably the greatest miracle that ever was. C.S. Lewis writes a book on miracles. He called the incarnation the greatest miracle of all. Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary who was born a virgin at that time. Are you tracking? This is our Lord Jesus Christ. And his genealogy You shouldn't skip over it because what it does is it grounds Christ's life in real history. 
He lived in real history. This is not somebody making this up. It's the lineage is all laid out for us, celebrating God's powerful providence, timing out His perfect plan, forming a genealogy which is dripping with God's grace, honoring men, but especially women. Especially women. In fact, in the line of the King of Kings are two ex-harlots, a pagan, and an ex-adulterer, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. God redeems the most wicked, the worst people ever, and then he uses them for his great purposes, people just like you and people just like me. Can I hear an amen to that? Listen, if you knew some of the people sitting next to you, go ahead, look down the row. Go ahead, look at them just for a second. If you knew them before they came to Christ, your toes would curl and you'd be telling the person, let's get out of here quick, okay? But now, because they have been transformed by Jesus Christ and recipients of His grace, they are people that you'd want a vacation with. People that you would love to be around. People that I adore because of the grace of God in their life. It's amazing what God does and what He's done. But secondly, there is to affirm Christ the homage to the king in chapter 2. The wise men are spoken about. They're a group of uh, unique wealthy scholars probably influenced by the prophet Daniel. You know Daniel, one of my favorite Old Testament books. And Daniel, his person in his writing, motivated these men to come. They came from his region. And the reason we know that is when you read Daniel chapter 9, it's not really that hard to interpret. It gives you actually a timetable of when Christ is going to be born. So they're looking at that timetable. They got the general range. The star appears in the sky and they're going, we're going to go see the king. They've been looking for him. They've been believing in him. And they go see him. Now, how many wise men were there? How many? There weren't three. Sorry, trapped you. I don't normally do that, but uh, there were three gifts. We have no idea how many wise men there were. There could have been 30 of them. But they all came to see him. And did they see Jesus in the manger? They did not. Your mangers are wrong. Your nativity scenes are errant. Stop putting the wise men by the baby Jesus in the manger. Stop it. Put them over on the mantle. Put them in the kitchen. They're on their way. To the Okay, they're on their way. They're not there yet. We know that because chapter 2, verse 11 says when they came and saw Christ, He was in a house. It wasn't a manger. It wasn't in a stable. It was a different situation. They got there later and they basically worshipped Him and honored Him. They brought Him gifts. They adored Him. That's what we should do. We've gathered to adore our Lord Jesus Christ as the King as our ruler, as our Lord, creator, God incarnate, all-powerful, all-knowing. They came to worship and bring gifts, and so should we. Thirdly, the hostility against the king. Even though he's king, there's already a push against him. The Magi were seeking the king. They go to Herod and talk about this announced king, and Herod wants to destroy him. This is Herod the Great. He's called king by the Roman Senate because of the influence of Mark Antony, who was really in with Cleopatra. Herod was a cruel and crafty man who permitted no one, not even his family, to have any threat to his rule. One time, you know what, Herod? He suspected his wife and her two brothers that were going to do an insurrection, so he murdered them. He just killed them. He had nine wives to satisfy his lust and also to cultivate his political ties. But when he was told about this other king, his first response is, going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. And so he does the math and he determines to kill all the infants two years old and younger in Bethlehem. Probably not hundreds of children, probably anywhere from 10 to 30, but he's still taking his guard and they're coming in and they're stabbing two-year-olds. Okay, This is a horrific man showing you what kind of man he was and the kind of hostility that Jesus would face. And again, we know that we're in a place where if we're going to follow Christ, are we going to get heat against us? Yes or no? Okay. Now start to talk about that, would you, as a family? Start to talk about how are they going to do it. Maybe they're not going to come and beat us up and burn our Bibles. Maybe they're just going to economically challenge us. 
Maybe they're going to cause us to lose our jobs. Whatever they're going to do, it's coming. We know it's coming. We can see it on the horizon. Don't live by fear. Live by what? Faith. Don't live by fear. Don't anticipate that. Just ask God for the grace to deal with whatever He brings. And make sure you make decisions not in a panic and not in fear. Running away is not going to solve this problem. What's going to solve this problem is you take your stand on the Word of God. That's to live by faith. I'm going to live biblically. Remember, you know how you get sometimes intense and worked up and somebody says, you know what, right now is not a good time for you to make a decision because you're all emotional. Anybody with me on that? Well, don't make emotion. Don't make fear decisions. Make decisions by faith. And so what you have here is this hostility. Maybe, maybe you parents of teenagers need to have a persecution day, right? Your kids get up in the morning, they sit at the table at breakfast, you go, we hate you! And then you start the process of what it's like to live in a persecuted environment. I'm just teasing, but I'm just saying we need to think about how to prepare for what's coming. Because if you follow Christ, you're going to be hated by some. And so in contrast to Herod, our king is humble. Fourthly in your outline, the humility of the king Joseph, Mary, and their infant son, uh, the God-man Jesus, flee to Egypt to escape the wrath of Herod. When they come home, they find that Archelaus, his Herod's son, is on the throne. They can't have that, so they don't stay in Bethlehem. They go to a very unique place, even less known village. It's a dinky place right in the center of Israel. It hangs off the northern rim of the Valley of Megiddo, where the Battle of Armageddon will be. It's off all the trade routes. It's right in the middle of fulfillment of prophecy. It is like living in Hemet and Las Vegas together. It is the despised city of Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. It's a byword for Israel of its day. It's just nobody cares. But you need to understand, even you who follow Christ, your past, like Christ's past in Nazareth, and your pain being in the hated city and other things that have occurred, are all in preparation for you to exalt the king. Some of you have horrific things that have happened in your past. They're all to shape you to become the man or the woman who can better proclaim Christ and minister to others. Every single hard thing in your life right now and in the past was intended to shape you so that you could bring God greater glory. Can I hear an amen to that? That's what he's doing. And he has the right to do that because he is the sovereign king. And there are things in my past, I'm telling you, honestly, I could go, Lord, I do not ever want to go through that again, but I am so thankful I did. I am so thankful you crushed me and put me at the bottom of the barrel because it made me more of the man you want me to be. Does that make sense? And same with you. The humility of the king, no matter where he's from. Matthew continued to tell you that Christ is going to fulfill promise after promise after promise, showing that he is the one that they've been anticipating for thousands of years. He is the king, the great king, the king of all kings. And Matthew makes certain, secondly, that his readers know that Christ has all the king's credentials. All the king's credentials. Chapter 3 and 4. Now, right in your Bible, right at the beginning of chapter 3, 30 years later, after chapter 2, 30 years later starts chapter 3, and in Nazareth, Christ grew up as a sinless boy, grew to a wood carpenter or a stone mason. I'm not being a heretic here. Mason and carpenter are the same word in the Greek language, and therefore we don't know whether he was a wood carpenter, we don't know whether he was a stone mason, but I would say to you that around Nazareth, not a lot of trees. A lot of stone. Not a lot of trees. But the time had arrived for Christ to begin His public ministry, which would culminate in His crucifixion on a cross, resurrection from the dead, and His ascension into heaven. Was He qualified? Well, first, He was qualified by the forerunner of the King. That's John the Baptist. Chapter 3, verses 1-13. through 13. They haven't heard a voice from a prophet for 400 years and John shows up and everybody is coming out to hear Him and He looks at Christ and He points out, Behold, there he is, the Lamb of God, who will take away the sin of the world. And John prepared the populace, calling people to repent of their sins. Write it down. Repent means to change your mind, which changes your behavior. Now, let me make this clear. Anytime you change your mind and it's genuine repentance, it will always, always result in you changing your behavior. 
It's never something that you just change your mind and nothing changes in your behavior. It is repentance is turning from idols to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 It is a change of direction where now you were following your own sin, your own ways, and now you're following His ways and you want to please Him. doesn't mean you're doing it perfectly, but you're repentant. And repentance, write this down please, always has fruit. It always has fruit. When John the Baptist is preaching at him, he says, listen, make sure you bear fruit. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. This is John the Baptist. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance has fruit. What is that fruit? I'm so glad you asked. For 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. Fruit is the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging a wrong. (laughs) In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent of the matter. In everything you what? Say it. Very end of verse 11. In everything you what? Demonstrated. Fruit is manifested. And what was the fruit? The earnestness, the vindication, the indignation, the longing. You hate sin. You want to follow Christ. When you talk to those who don't know about Christ, you're calling them to faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. It's the same coin. It's one thing. It's a non-meritorious work before God, but it's always true. If there's genuine faith, there's repentance with it. And you know what genuine faith is, right? Everybody with me? I'm going to show you very quickly. Probably repeated this way too many times with you. I believe the stool will hold me. I believe it will hold me. But I don't have faith in that stool until what? I sit in it. Okay, you're hoping it'll collapse right now, but it's not going to. Okay? Now I have faith in that stool. Because now I have surrendered my weight, my life to this stool to hold me up. I believed it would hold me, but now I have faith in the stool. Are you tracking with me? When you have faith in Jesus Christ, it's not just an intellectual affirmation. You're saying, I'm giving my life. I'm, I'm, I'm trusting in what he's done. I'm surrendering all that I am for all that he is. I'm, I'm, I'm believing by faith that he did this for me. Repentance would be then that change of direction. And that's what you're asking. That you're looking for, in repentance, a passionate hatred for sin. A fear of continuing in this sin and the consequences of it. A longing to live obedient to Christ. A pleasing your king as you seek to live lovingly holy. It didn't matter that John, if he's talking to Pharisees, the super elite, or he's talking to the lowliest Israelite. It didn't matter if he's talking to these super rich Sadducee business-like types or just the common beggar on the street. He told them the same thing. They needed to what? Repent and turn to him. So here's John wearing a camel hair robe. That's really not the high point of fashion. He's eating locusts and honey, which by the way, if I was eating locusts, I'd dip them in honey too, okay? He's a poor man, a prophet, preparing the way of the coming of Christ and the beginning of his ministry. And when people did repent, what did he do? He baptized them. Now, his baptism was anticipation of the coming of Christ. When you're baptized, you're acknowledging that you have submitted to Christ. Does that make sense? You're identifying. There's a big difference between the two. John actually talked about two other baptisms. One baptism was the spirit baptism, and he talked about that very clearly, that when you are born again, you are transformed again, changed. You're immersed into Christ and you're immersed into the body of Christ. You belong to this people and now you follow Christ and it's a transformation. The baptism of the Spirit. It's a transformation. He also talked about a baptism of fire. He's saying if you aren't baptized in Christ, then you're going to be baptized in eternal torment. And he was talking about heaven and hell, hell being the place of torment, the baptism of fire. It's a real place. Real people go there. Let me make it clear. Everybody on planet earth, everybody that you know, everybody in this room will either be in heaven or either be in hell. There is no other third option. There is no alternative. And one is a place of torment and one is the place of absolute continual ongoing joy and it's a warning that John was getting if you're not going to be baptized by the spirit of God you're going to be baptized by fire and all of this was point to the coming king 
so that Christ would increase and John would decrease, which is our hope as well in our own lives. The older we get, we want more of Christ and less of us. Secondly, there's the affirmation of the king. So after this incredible event, then there's this amazing event where the triune God affirms God the Son. Jesus was baptized, but not because he's a repentant sinner, but because he was not a sinner at all. In fact, John the Baptist actually tried to stop Jesus from being baptized because he knew he was perfect, but by being baptized, he's identifying with John's ministry, he's identifying with the very sinners that he came to save, but mostly he's pointing to his future baptism where he is going to experience all of God's wrath upon himself and the full force of God's judgment and be baptized in that for people. So he identifies. And the most important reason for his baptism, are you ready? Is the affirmation of the other members of the triune God. The affirmation. That's what happens here. God the Spirit appears in a form of a dove. God the Father speaks a word of affirmation, relationship, and purpose. Look at the verses. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and following. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice came out of heavens. This is my beloved Son in whom I am. Well pleased. The Spirit and the Father approve of God the Son. When I was first uh, born again and I, I, I had a, a ministry at Magnolia High School in Orange County and right across the street was a cult and they were big on campus and I had to learn about this new cult because not a lot of people knew about it. It was called the local church and the local church are Sabalianists. You know what a Sabalianist is? A Sabalianist, and he's the guy who started this heresy a long time ago, is basically they believe that God the Father had a hat on that made him God the Father. Then he took that hat off and put another hat on and became God the Son. Then he took that hat off and put another hat on and became God the Holy Spirit. That is not true. That is error. That is heresy. We have three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and they are one God. Say, Chris, I don't get that. That hurts my head. Welcome to the club. <laughs> That's the God of our Bible. And what you have here is a significant passage where all three persons are manifested at one time. Right? Christ, God the Son, God the Spirit in the form of a dove, God the Father speaking of His affirmation of His own Son. All three persons, one God. And you have what you have here is God affirming God. That's what's happening here. It's amazing. He is affirmed by God as God. This is no ordinary man. This is God the Son. Knows everything, could do anything. And you know what blows you away? You should walk out of here wagging your head. He cares about you. He knows everything going on in your life. The sparrow hops. He knows about you. His thoughts towards you exceed the sand of the seashore. He knows about you. And he loves you. And he made you his child. It's not capricious. It's very intentional. This is God, people. And is he perfect? Is he sinless? Is he holy? Thirdly in your outline, the character of the king. The character of the king. Write it down. The word impeccable. I-M-P-E-C-C-A-B-L-E. -E. Impeccable. That means that he could not sin. He could not sin. Uh, after this incredible high experience of the triune God affirming God the Son, Jesus is led by the Spirit of God, led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested. Now, this event is not to show the battle against Jesus and Satan. It's really not meant even to show us how to deal with temptation, though it does give us a lot of clues. But it is to demonstrate, the reason this event happens is to demonstrate Christ's character, that He is holy that he is, are you ready, sinless and will never sin. Um, the reason I, I explain this to men is to make it easy for you to understand. Just picture a block of steel that's 20 feet by 20 feet by 20 feet by 20 feet. And then imagine a wire that is welded to that block of steel. The block of steel is his divine character. The wire is his human character. When you press up against that wire, does it feel the pressure? Yes or no? Yeah. Does the block move? No. It doesn't. You press, you press, you press. It squeezes. It's painful. It's excruciating. The block doesn't move. That's your Lord Jesus Christ. 
divine, fully human, fully God, one person, without confusion, and he could not sin. Listen, this battle in the wilderness is not a battle of equals. Is Satan equal to God? Please say it again. It is what? No or yes? No, it is not. He is a high, rebellious angel. Maybe the most powerful angel, but he's still created by God. This is creation rebelling against God. This is not yin and yang. This is not the dark side and the good side of the force. This is God who is basically dealing with a rebellion of his creation to him. And of all the temptations that they threw at him, even the flesh, the world, and even this proud glory in oneself over God's will is thrown at Jesus, and it's like, not going to move. Not going to stumble. Christ exposes Satan, his tactics, he defeats him, and he proves that he is sinless and unable to sin in every way and in any way. He is impeccable. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 gives us great hope and encouragement. Listen, are there any sinners in the room here? Anyone? Anyone a sinner? Sit. You can talk to Christ about your sin because he knows about the pressure of temptation far more than you. We'll look at that at the very end. But understand, Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, who cannot sympathize with that. He, he understands. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet, what? Without sin. Because of this victory, we, and when we're in Him, we can be victorious and rise above our temptation as well. And now you and I are part of, fourthly, the mission of the King. The mission of the King, Matthew describes the Lord's prophesied move to Capernaum. And he also clearly informs us that Christ had a mission. He preached the gospel. John the Baptist preached the gospel. Jesus Christ preached the gospel. You and I are too? Preach the gospel. Do we save anybody? No, God does. But we are accountable to proclaim. That's why he left us here. Are you going to proclaim the gospel in heaven? Yes or no? No. This is your opportunity right now. This is how we then are left here and why we're left here. One of the reasons is to proclaim the truth that only Christ can save you from your sin. And therefore turn from your sin and demonstrate repentance with a changed life. Now let's briefly look at the other three gospels. The other three Gospels tell us at the same period of time in Matthew chapters 3 and 4. What else is happening that the other Gospels tell us is happening at the same period of time of Matthew 3 and 4 that sets up the Sermon on the Mount. Christ proves his person and his character by doing the first of his miracles, which he turns water into wine at an incredible wedding. It, I, I don't know anything about wine. I am an uncultured blue-collar dude. Uh, I think most wine tastes like turtle spit. Uh, I just, I, that's, I, I'm, this is not anti-alcohol. I'm just telling you, I, I, I just, it, this must have been something. Because they were going, this is good. An acru, prosecco, something. You know, I don't know what. You know, it must have been incredible. Because they're totally blown away by this. And it was just Christ loving people. Loving a couple. Loving that situation. Didn't have to do it. It was out of His grace. At the same time, He then turns the world, the Jewish world on fire and turns it upside down by clearing out the temple. They all knew it was wrong what they were doing in the temple. He does something about it. He clears it out. And then that results in a nighttime meeting with the greatest and best teacher in Israel, Nicodemus. You must be born again, which is where we get the phrase, Nick at night. That's where it comes from right there. This leads sorry, the Lord to uh, meeting the Samaritan woman at the well, and then they evangelize her city healing of the nobleman's son, which is far away. He starts healing from a distance. He proves that a prophet has no honor uh, in his own hometown because our perfect Lord Jesus is rejected in Nazareth, setting up his national rejection. So he immediately appoints four apostles. Now, understand, it comes in fours. There's four. He gets more resistance. He appoints four more. And then he appoints the final four. Four, four, and four. This happens during this period of time. Same time during Matthew chapters 3 and 4, he heals in the synagogue of Capernaum. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He then calls the second four disciples, which then begins to push this button. The teachers of Israel are teaching tradition, not the Bible. They're teaching application to the Bible, but not the Bible. And they're confusing people. And they've created an external way uh, of earning your salvation. So Christ does things and says things that sets them on their ear. Right? He heals a leprous man. He heals and then he says, your sins are forgiven? 
to the paralytic. Oh man, they are ignited over that. And then he makes the worst decision possible. He invites Matthew to be a part of his 12. And this is a tax gatherer. And they're thinking, you think this would be like they'd reject Christ. It actually worked the opposite. When he appoints Matthew, they're like, man, if he can accept Matthew, and Matthew can be a different person and become this unique individual, then he can accept all of us. And crowds followed him. This is beginning the year of his popularity. They call it the second year of ministry is the year of popularity. He heals a lame man, but he does on the Sabbath. This violates tradition, not truth, of God's word. He declares to all that he's equal to the Father. His men pick a grain on the Sabbath. Again, forbidden by tradition, but not the truth of God's word. It was actually allowed by God's word. And then Jesus seals the hatred of the Pharisees by healing a man on the Sabbath as he's looking at them. So he appoints the final four. The twelve there are then uh, affirmed and he has his twelve and then many more disciples around him. But at this point, Jesus is back at Capernaum and everywhere he goes, he's followed by a massive crowd. He can't even stand. He's got to sit out in boats and stuff to do his teaching. And this is where he is at, at the slope of the Sea of Galilee. It's one of the prettiest spots in Israel. It's a natural amphitheater. Did I tell you this already? That actually that the, the church at Capernaum that they have now, it's, it's a Catholic church that's up at the top there and there's all this whatever ceremonial junk. That's not really the hill. The hill is one step toward the Mediterranean coast, one hill over, and you know that for multiple reasons. But one of them is you can be 300 yards up at the top of the hill and 300 yards down at the bottom. And if you're at the bottom, and I actually did this, I went, can you hear me? And they can hear you 300 yards up the hill. It's perfect acoustics. It's like God created it so it would be the place where he could preach a sermon. It's amazing. And so here he is in this situation, and he preaches this sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, a sermon that'll strip away externals, it'll destroy false religion, it'll keep you from drifting off track, it'll keep you from focusing on the wrong things in your Christianity, it'll teach you that it'll expose the phony, it'll plead with listeners to repent in heart, it is a discourse that'll call you to Christ and transform you. Are you ready for the Sermon on the Mount? Are you ready? Come back next week. You'll be overwhelmed. So let's bring it home. The Sermon on the Mount will focus on what's important. So letter A, your genealogy is not important, but what is important is you're a genuine child of God. Listen, if you're a kid, a student, a collegian, a young married, it doesn't matter. You're not a Christian because mom and dad are. You're not a Christian because your wife is. You're not a Christian because your husband is. In the same way, being related to Al Capone doesn't make you a gangsta. So being related to Christians doesn't make you a believer. You're not a Christian because you go to church anymore and you go to McDonald's makes you a hamburger, okay? You're a Christian when by faith you surrender your life on the chair, by faith, to Christ and His work on the cross. It's a non-meritorious work. You're not earning points. You're just saying the Lord gives you the grace to somehow respond in faith. You surrender. You turn from your sin. You see yourself as a horrific sinner. You embrace the historical fact that Jesus is God who died for your sin on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. You're a Christian when you exchange all that you are for all that he is. Your friends and family don't matter as much as you being a true child of God. Can you say amen to that? It's so important that you see how great the love of the Father has bestowed on us that he would be called, that we would be called children of God. That's the family you need to belong to. That's the one that lasts forever. That's the one that matters. Letter B. I, I, you know, I don't care if you're East Coast. I don't care if you came over on one of the pilgrim boats. And every time you mention it, oh, I came over on a pilgrim I don't care. I'm filthy rich. I have millions of dollars. I don't care. God doesn't care. What he cares about is if you're a child of God. Letter B. Feeling sorry over your sin is not important. What's important is, is genuine repentance. Genuine repentance. You've already seen that. Is there an earnestness, a vindication, an indication of fear? Do you hate sin? Is it proven by how you demonstrate real fruit? It's never merely a feeling. It's never merely talked about. Real spirit-produced repentance is demonstrated by fruit that's seen. Let her see. 
Being tempted is not important, but talking to and trusting Christ, the impeccable is. Listen, the very fact that Christ could not sin makes his understanding of your struggle with sin all the greater. Some of you are battling with sin issues. And I'm here to proclaim to you, cast your care on Jesus because he cares for you. Talk to him about it. Part of the reason why you're still struggling is you're not talking to your Savior. He understands your struggle. When you're tempted, you eventually fall to the pressure of that temptation. But when the devil threw everything at Christ, he continued to stand firm, the pressure against temptation, longer than you and I ever will. He understands temptation better than you do. If there's four trees in a storm, and the wind goes up to 50 miles an hour, and that one tree falls over, then it goes up to 100 miles an hour, and the next tree falls over, then it goes up to 150 miles an hour, and then the next tree falls over, but at 200 miles an hour, that one tree that stands, which tree felt the full force of the wind? The one that stands. That's Christ. Everything that could be thrown at you in temptation, He experienced. He knows more about temptation than you do. And I do. Do you understand that? But yet without sin. But He understands temptation itself is not sin. It's when you give in to it. Right? So understand, He knows. He has, and you have, and we have a high priest who can sympathize with your weaknesses. Would you please talk to Him? I talk to Christian after Christian after Christian. They go, I'm battling with this, I'm battling with Are you talking to Jesus? No. I go, talk to Him. Pour out your heart. Let Him give you wisdom from His Word and watch what the impeccable one can do when you link up with Him over your battles with sin. And letter D, calling FBC your church is not as, as important as being immersed in Christ's mission together. In other words, Christ showed us what our mission is, calling sinners to repent, turn to Christ, Belonging to a church is vital, but that's not the end of your faith. You're left here. He left you here to proclaim Christ, to show off Christ, calling his enemies to become his friends and followers. Are you? And lastly, letter E, are you loving your king? Genuinely, practically, truly. Listen, we love him because he first loved us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that you would be honored and glorified by how we respond to your word. And we pray, Father, that we might be transformed. Some of us might be drawn to you and that you would receive all the glory for what you'll do in our lives today. Thank you that you are a God that we can trust and that we can come to, rely upon, and that you are bigger than we can imagine. And we'll give you all the praise and all the glory for what you'll do. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.